Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the SEPAD podcast, the thing that I probably enjoy doing just about most of all in my academic week. A wonderful chance for me to talk to, to scholars, practitioners, people working in the field whose work I, I really admire. And this week I'm joined by, by someone I've been trying to get on the show for, for quite a while now, um, someone who's, who's been right at the forefront of, of work on sectarianization. We had his, his co-editor on previously, we had Nader Hashemi on, so it's only fair that we have Danny Postel on. So uh, Danny is Assistant Director of Middle East and North African Studies Programme at Northwestern University. Danny, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you, Simon. I'm a huge fan of your work and of the podcast, which I've been listening to uh, and enjoying quite a bit over the last few weeks. So it's a thrill to be on. Thank you. It's, it's very kind of you to join us. I guess I should start by saying Happy Thanksgiving to you and to yours. Well, thanks very much, Simon. And I, I trust you had a good public holiday and, and you're not suffering too much today after the excesses of yesterday. Not too much. Excellent. Good. Well, Danny, I'm sure everyone is, is all too aware of, of what you've been involved in in recently, um, particularly your, your work with Nader. But I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about, about how you got involved in this in the first place, please. Sure. So, yeah, you mentioned Nader Hashemi, who's also been a guest on this podcast. Nader and I worked very closely together um, uh, for several years, including uh, at the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Denver, of which he is the director. And for four years, I was the associate director from 2012 to 2016. And one of the first things we did when I arrived in Denver to take up that position was we organized an international conference on the Syrian conflict. Right. We, we started organizing that in the fall of 2012, and then the conference took place in January of 2013. And immediately um, uh, at the conclusion of the conference, um, we set out to assemble a book that was not exactly the proceedings of the conference, but it included some of the best papers and right. talks in the conference, along with some other uh, essays that we commissioned um, and a few that we reprinted. And this um, became uh, a short book titled The Syria Dilemma. It came out in the fall of 2013. And so Syria... Um, became a central focus of our work in Denver. It became, I think, for many of us uh, around the world, um, not only Middle East specialists, but people uh, who work on questions of conflict, civil war, violence, um, and peace building. Syria became this kind of all-consuming um, preoccupation for me and for Nader. And one of the things that uh, really disturbed us in the global debate uh, and narrative about Syria, Simon, was the way in which, uh, beginning around 2013 particularly and into 2014 and 15 it became more and more common to frame the Syrian conflict as a sectarian war, yes. as a sectarian conflict. 
and as if it always had been, or as if it were merely inevitable that a society such as Syria, in a region such as the Middle East, that a civil conflict such as the Syrian one would inevitably lead to sectarian uh, war. And um, this, you know, began to rub us uh, the wrong way very quickly because... I can imagine. Well, if you you know how the Syrian conflict started, the uprising begins in March of 2011, and it's, it's quite notable that in those first few months of the Syrian uprising, um, the slogans and the demands that animated the protests had nothing to do with sect. Of course. They, they were to do with the very same things that motivated the Tunisian and Egyptian uprisings, which is to say uh, human dignity, social justice, democratic rights, um, and an end to the humiliation of decades of dictatorship and tyranny and repression. Yes. And 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 in fact, uh, the sociology of the Syrian uprising um, shows that there that it was a very much a very a cross sectarian um, uh, composition uh, to those protests in those first few months: March, April, May, June, July, August of 2011. You saw, of course, there were Sunni. Uh, Arabs uh, participating in the protest. Uh, They make up a majority of Syrian society, but there were many, many uh, other groups uh, represented on the streets of cities all across Syria. There were um, Christians, there were uh, Alawis, there were Druze, there were Ismailis, there were Kurds, there were Armenians, there were atheist and secular Syrians as well. And not only were were those protests devoid of uh, sectarian demands and slogans, there were actually one of my favorite slogans from the Syrian uprising was, um, and you probably remember this one, Simon, um, neither Salafi nor Muslim brother, our sect is freedom. Yes, I do. Yeah. This was a slogan that actually uh, took uh, root and really... uh, resonated deeply across Syria, that this this was an uprising that had nothing to do with sect, that represented many uh, people of many different sectarian backgrounds within Syrian society. It was a cross-cutting uh, popular uprising whose demands had everything to do with, as I mentioned, these more uh, universal uh, issues to do with uh, social justice, economic uh, justice, and uh, democratic rights. But as we know, the, the Syrian conflict did morph over time into a sectarian one, it, and it took on a, a more and more sectarian cast over time. So, so there were two things about this that troubled us, me and Nader, as we thought about it. One was that the narrative, there was this kind of uh, reading history backwards from the vantage point of 2015 or 14 or late mm. 2013, seeing that the Syrian conflict had become sectarian, it it became very fashionable to speak of the, sec, the Syrian conflict as if it had always been sectarian from day one, which was in fact the opposite. Yes. Uh, the, the, the truth was the opposite. And uh, so we wanted to push back against this retroactive uh, rewriting of history 
um, and this case of reading history backwards, and we wanted to show that the, sec the Syrian conflict had not started as a sectarian one, but in fact uh, was quite different. But we also wanted to, to explain how did it become sectarian. Uh, and, and, and the story is, is complex. Of course, uh, the Assad regime, uh, I would say, bears the, uh, the, the, the majority of responsibility for mm. the sectarianization of the Syrian conflict, as Paolo Gabriel Gilupinto, the anthropologist, uh, demonstrates in his wonderful chapter in our book, Sectarianization. Uh, but, but it wasn't only the Assad regime. There were other forces and factors as well. There are all these vectors, if you will, of sectarianization, top-down, bottom-up, inside-out, outside-in, regional factors, uh, geopolitical factors, as your work has, um, I think, illuminated so importantly, Simon. Uh, so that, that was our Our first task was to push back against this this narrative, this this rewriting of Syrian history in which it had always been a sectarian conflict, and this broader narrative that the Middle East, all of the conflict and, and violence in the Middle East was was had been reduced to a trans-historical ancient hatreds playing out. Um, we, this was so obviously distorting what was actually going on. But we also wanted to, that, that was the negative uh, 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 task, if you will, which is to, to debunk and push back against this new conventional wisdom, this kind of orientalist sectarian narrative right. of ancient hatreds. But the other task was a more positive one, if you will, which was to explain, to offer an alternative explanation using social scientific tools to show what actually did happen both in Syria and then in other conflicts, in Yemen, in Bahrain, in Iraq, and in other parts of the region where you had conflicts that, again, began in non-sectarian, cross-sectarian ways, but then morphed into sectarian conflicts over time. How did this happen? And so we, we, un, we decided our next project would be a region-wide uh, analysis of this sectarianization process. And that's when we began to reach out to all of these various experts on the various countries to construct the case studies. Sure. And, and that resulted in the book Sectarianization. This wonderful project that, that you and Nader are, are responsible for driving. That, that I was speaking to, to Fanar uh, earlier, or last week, but it came out earlier this week. And we, we were talking about how, how the debate on sectarianism has been pushed to a point where most people agree on... On, on on the characteristics of sectarian difference and and the key key aspects key issues at play that the most scholars agree with one another and I think that that you and Nader are responsible for for dragging a lot of the the debate in that direction to that that sort of playing field where people are, are in agreement about the key issues so it, it's fascinating hearing your thought processes behind why you thought you need to to act in that way and why you thought you needed to to do that to get to that point and it, it must be really interesting and also deeply depressing looking back on on syria and your workshop back in in 2012 it must be really fascinating but but tragic just thinking how how much possibility there was indeed indeed and in fact um just today simon uh, after waking up, I learned the news 
I heard the news that uh, the great Syrian activist Raid Fares was killed. And this, in fact, speaks to um, precisely what you're saying. Raid Fares, who, for those who don't know, uh, was a civil society activist um, who was largely responsible for these wonderful uh, uh, banners with very creative and humorous and clever and ironic uh, um, slogans uh, that came from uh, the Syrian town of Kafranbel. And uh, Raid Fares was, was uh, uh, involved in, in radio uh, broadcasting and uh, just one of the really one of the great visionary progressive uh, Syrian civil society activists who represented the best of the Syrian uprising, precisely those things I was describing earlier, those that first phase of the Syrian uprising, the popular uprising whose demands were cross-cutting and yes. democratic and to do with human dignity. And, you know, he found himself in the crosshairs both of the Assad regime and these various jihadi groups, sectarian groups, Right, and was ultimately yeah. his life was ultimately ended uh, uh, by uh, HTS. It seems, uh, but th the point is that yes, this is uh, the Syrian conflict. When we look back on it, Simon is 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 actually deeply depressing and tragic, as you say, and uh, it's it, it it seems to uh, you know I, I think it's going to take us many many years to make sense of it all. It's all that process is only beginning now. Sure, and I think not only understanding, but obviously uh, rebuilding, dealing with, with post-conflict resolutions, transformations, infrastructure, like that, that's, that's probably a discussion for a whole other series. So yeah. perhaps best for us to leave those, those behind. But Danny, I want to turn the conversation to you, if I may. And you mentioned civil society, and I know that you've been very active in terms of, of civil society. I mean, could you tell us why or, and how, perhaps, you got involved in, in civil society actions? Right. So, yes, I should say that, you know, although I do work um, at a university, uh, Northwestern University, and before that at the University of Denver, I'm really uh, uh, sort of a leopard in the temple of academia, <laughs> which is to say I don't have a PhD, I'm not a professor, I'm not on the faculty, um, I hold an administrative position um, at Northwestern University, as I did um, at the University of Denver. So this, But this research uh, on um, conflict uh, in the Middle East and social movements in the Middle East is something that grows out of um, my own work as an activist for many years, um, in Chicago, right. where I live, and uh, is this where yeah, you're from, I, Danny? You're from Chicago originally. That's right. I grew up here, and uh, and and I go away uh, every few years to live somewhere else. But I seem to constantly come. <laughs> right. Uh, this the gravitational pull sure. is, is is quite is quite strong. So yeah, I worked in the in the labor movement here in Chicago for some years. Um, I worked for an organization called Interfaith Worker Justice, right? Uh, which is a workers uh, a workers' rights organization um, that specifically um, organized uh, and connected uh, faith leaders from, particularly from the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim uh, faith communities. Um, 
based uh, the, the organization is based here in Chicago, but it's actually a national organization. And I worked in the communications shop of that organization for four years, from 2007 to 2011. And then after that, I worked for a, a major labor union, uh, also here in Chicago, uh, the Service Employees International Union, on a campaign called Fight for a Fair Economy. Right. Uh, which was a coalition of uh, labor unions and grassroots community organizations um, campaigning for economic justice. So, um, and I've also worked in uh, the anti-war movement uh, over the years and, and have done uh, some human rights activism. So, um, and, and, and so that, in a sense, Simon, when I come to this, uh, this set of questions around sectarianization and desectarianization, I do so, you know, partly uh, through my intellectual engagement with these questions, but partly as an activist. And I, um, I think particularly when it comes to uh, this huge question of desectarianization, which, as you know, our book concludes with a, a very provisional but I think very important um, discussion of the prospects for reversing this poisonous process of sectarianization. Um, it's, I think it's, 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 it points in the direction of a whole set of initiatives that need to take, uh, that, that need to, that need to go on from here. And it's written by our University of Denver colleague, Tim Sisk, who's a really, uh, uh, as you know, a, a, an important figure in the literature on peace building. Yeah, he certainly and, is. Yeah, post-conflict, peace building, deeply divided societies. So when I... And, and I, 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 you know, maybe we can talk about this later, but I think as you know from our email exchanges and from talking to Nader Hashemi, you know, a lot of our, what we want to focus on, I think, next is really the, uh, more concretely on this question of desectarianization. And my own feeling is that academic research and social science are critical to this, uh, but but can only take us so far. We What we really need is we, we need a massive engagement with grassroots activists yes. and society leaders and imams and community activists uh, across the region. It's really going to be on them to, um, to, to, to lead the desectarianization process if it is indeed to, to sure. move. Um, it, it, and, and I think academic uh, researchers and social scientists in the West and in the region can play an important role in framing the issue and pushing back on bad arguments and, of course, the comparative work that CISC and others have done, and we need a lot more of it. In other mm. words, what are the lessons that we can learn from cases like Northern Ireland, Bosnia, Cyprus, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Rwanda, many other cases, South Africa, you know, societies that have been torn to shreds by conflict whether it be ethnic conflict, religious conflict, uh, sectarian conflict, or other uh, fault lines, but how do these societies rebuild? How are these processes reversed? Sure. Uh, what lessons can be learned from those cases for the Middle East today and that might uh, inform our thinking about the sectarianization process? These are all very important questions, but I think that in the end, Simon, it's really going to take strategic organizing and activist mm. uh, imagination 
to really move this process forward. And so that's where I think my um, my background as an activist and also as a journalist, I mean, that's really where I come to academia uh, sort of from the outside or through the back door from many, many years as an activist, but also as a journalist. Sure, and I, I think you're absolutely key. Uh, your, your point is absolutely key about that, Danny. I mean, in, in the work that you've been doing, the book and, and the pieces, uh, the New York Times piece and the IE Med piece, you, you're talking about the sectarianization of, of the region becoming a, a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, a sort of an all-encompassing narrative, and, and that's incredibly dangerous. And that isn't going to be changed by academics in ivory towers or indeed academics going and talking to elites. That's going to require a, a holistic response. And that can only be done through, through mobilization, through activism, through a, a holistic counter-response to sectarianization, through this de-sectarianization. Yes, very much so. And I, I have to applaud um, your CEPAD project. For I mean, the word desectarianization is in the very name of your of your project, uh, Simon. And I that was when I first saw it online. I thought, oh my God! I immediately emailed Nodder and said, Have you seen this? <laughs> this is very important. I was so encouraged to see that there's an entire initiative around this question of desectarianization, and I look forward to having a series of dialogues uh, with you both, you know, on this podcast, but also uh, privately, Simon. Uh, about various, I think, uh, ways that this uh, desectarianization process can move forward, but I and I, I just really applaud your pro- your 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 um, your institute um, at your university and you personally for for moving this ball forward and creating these conversations. And I've I've I've, I've had the pleasure of reading this draft that you shared with me on on desectarianization as well, which has stimulated all sorts of thoughts. So I think there's a huge conversation to be had around this, an enormous research project, many, mm. many uh, researchers and social scientists um, and, and peace builders and civil society activists and religious leaders and grassroots community uh, organizations across the region. I think it's going to take a very long time, Simon, as sure. you yourself have noted. It's uh, it, This could take generations. It's a lot easier, in other words, to sectarianize uh, a political landscape than to desectarianize it. It's a lot Certainly easier is. to unleash these forces than to um, de-escalate or, 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 you know, put them back, yeah. uh, as it were. It's, it's, in other words, we as researchers and social scientists and writers can demonstrate, as I think, uh, you know, this literature has done, uh, that, that those of us involved in this, in, this, uh, in this particular line of research have shown that the sectarianization process is in fact, you know, a, a game of manipulation. It involves a, a, an instrumentalization of identities, it is uh, done for very specific political purposes. It has not always been this way. It needn't always been this way, and it could be otherwise, etc. This is a very important intellectual intervention yes, that we're engaged in. But it doesn't, um, you know, simply demonstrating these things doesn't put the genie back in the bottle. It's not like people uh, on the ground 
are going to uh, hear these arguments and say, okay, well, we're just going to put our, our, our put down our arms and stop uh, demonizing the sectarian other. It doesn't work that way. The, these narratives, Simon, uh, get inside people's hearts and minds. They may come from these manipulated, top-down, authoritarian uh, states and regimes. They may be uh, I fueled by sectarian entrepreneurs on the ground. But once they lodge in people's hearts and minds, they take on a reality of their own. They become something of a self-fulfilling prophecy. That doesn't mean that they can't uh, be combated, reversed, etc. I think they can, but it's not easy because people, once people really internalize these things and are willing to act on them, willing to kill, willing to die for these narratives, it's um, it's a tall order to challenge that, but but it's one that's got to be done. It, it certainly does. And before following up on that, I just thank you so much for the very kind words. They, they mean a lot. I feel very embarrassed. Perhaps I should edit it out of the podcast, but... Um, no, thank you. It, it's it's certainly reassuring, and it's not possible without the the intellectual work that you have done, and and many others, and indeed your your support. So I thank you and everyone else who has been so kind and generous. But uh, Danny, I think it is key. It, it's absolutely essential that that we do this. That that we talk to people, and and I think your point about comparative politics and learning from other cases is absolutely key. I've just uh, I've been talking to my students today about uh, about power sharing and Northern Ireland, and that was yep. obviously a, a generational struggle that that people, when they were caught in it, thought there was there was no way out of this. This was a, a political exactly. struggle that that took on religious elements that was all encompassing that was so divisive, but that's yet right. there is hope. There is a way out. Granted, that's still not fully been realized. There are still issues. If you go to Belfast, you still see the quote-unquote peace walls. But we can learn from that. There is hope. And I I always use the Northern Ireland example when I do public speaking, particularly with non-academic and non-Middle East specialist uh, audiences, Simon, because Northern Ireland is so instructive. I mean, many Americans here are of Irish ancestry, and so they have some, not a lot of uh, maybe intricate knowledge of the politics of of, of Ireland and Northern Ireland, but they're certainly aware of it on some level and feel a connection to it. And I always emphasize that, hey, you know, this is is actually something that was just resolved to the extent that it's been resolved. I mean, a mere 21 years ago, that was 1997, that the accords uh, were signed and that the uh, fighting you know, was brought to a formal end. This is very recent history. Um, And and this is something that, you know, again, pushes back against the narrative, this pernicious narrative in the West, this essentialist, sectarian, orientalist narrative that, oh, sectarian hatred is something that those people do, Muslims, Arabs, there, not us in yeah. the civilized, enlightened West, right? Well, as, as a matter of fact, there was there have been many centuries of sectarian conflict and war indeed in, in the heart of Europe. And, and in the case of Northern Ireland, it only came to a conclusion a mere two decades ago. So this is something very palpable that, that's right here 
in our midst. And I think it's very important to emphasize both that uh, this pushes back against this, you know, Orientalist narrative that it's only over there, those people, Mm -hmm. those Muslims or Arabs or people of the Middle East who engage in these in these savage passions. Um, but it's also important because, as you say, Simon, these conflicts do come to an end. Every civil war, even the most seemingly intractable ones, uh, or the ones that, that whose stakes seem completely non-negotiable because of the role of religion, eventually they all do come to an end. So the question is how, and 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 how do different conflicts come to an end, and what we what can we learn from those that might apply to the Middle East? I almost feel like one task for us might be to inform and really do a series of, of, of educational um, kind of uh, uh, engagements with, with people on the ground in the Middle East, in the heart of these, where some of these conflicts are burning, to, to actually teach them, to tell them the stories of these other conflicts. Mm. And fueled, how did they get started? How did they get fueled? And how did they eventually get resolved? I think that those stories are very instructive, and sometimes it's not about the uh, the conceptual or the empirical or the social scientific as much as it is as it is about the narrative and the emotional aspects, and yeah. sometimes just the stories. We need powerful stories of of ways in which horrific conflicts have come to an end, and who were the leaders who decided to take the high ground and to speak to um, their communities. And, and and bring these conflicts to an end, ultimately. Of course, and, and within that, of course, there is a, a narrative of hope. And I think that is incredibly important when you're in what seems to be a spiral escalation of, of conflict, of violence, of intractability. Having that little bit of hope that it doesn't have to be this way can be, can be life-changing. But I think that's a really interesting way of, of doing it. And I think that's probably a conversation that, that we should have at a later date about what we can potentially do. But that is really, really important. But Danny, I'm conscious that, that we've been talking for quite a while now. And, uh, and this is right in the middle of your day. So I must let you get back to it. But all that remains to be said is thank you so much for coming on. It's been fascinating to talk to you. Wonderful to, to finally get you on the show. So thank you so much. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Simon, the pleasure has been mine, truly. And again, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I do want to say that this project of yours, um, the SEPAD project, has really, I think, not, it's more than the sum of its parts, because what you've done is you've created this chain of conversations now and connecting different researchers and scholars together with one another. And I've had the benefit of listening to, I think, every episode of this podcast and, you know, sharing that sometimes like the interview with Fanar Haddad actually occasioned a long email exchange between uh, me and Nader last night. And so, you know, you've really begun, I think, to take to assemble various pieces of the sectarianization research and the important work on desectarianization and You've really interconnected them in a very fruitful way, Simon. And I know it's still young, early in the process, but I think that you have built a, a platform that will allow 
those of us engaged in this work, but more importantly, people on the ground in the region who ultimately will be the protagonists in the desectarianization story, you've begun to build this global network um, uh, that, that has connected us together and is building a foundation for the next step. Well, I'm certainly very embarrassed, but if we achieve any of that, then I'm, I'm certainly very thankful and very hopeful for the future. But obviously, it's not possible without without everyone that I've spoken to and everyone who listens. So thank you so much for, for doing that, for listening, for sharing. And Danny, thank you again. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise, Simon.